0: Who is God? Who is God? A simple question that will take me about two hours to finish talking about. I mean, no, but the question is, how would you describe God to someone that they ask? Who fundamentally is God? How could you do that? We joked about this morning doing my sermon in a tweet. How could you do that in 140 characters? Or is it 280 now? I'm not even sure. I don't tweet. How could you do? How could you describe God in 140 characters? Characters. What is fundamental about God and His character that people need to know? Last week we learned about in the Heidelberg Catechism that our only comfort in life and death is the knowledge that we are not our own, that we belong to God. And this tyranny of self-belonging, of of self-identifying, of self-creating, and self-improving to always be more efficient and to be the best selves that we can be, that's not our comfort. And In fact, it's agonizing to us. It's the opposite of comfort. It brings us anxiousness, stress, and perhaps instead of navel-gazing and looking inward to find, instead of finding our true self... And figuring out where we belong, perhaps we should look to the one to whom we belong. Who is he? Who do we belong to and who is he? So maybe the question should be not how we would describe God, but how would God describe himself? Or how does God describe himself? And who does he show us he is? Well, let's turn to God's word in Exodus 34. If you have your Bible, that's great. Turn it. We would love to have your Bible. There's pew few Bibles in there, too. It will be on the screen. I love having a physical Bible. Exodus 34, 1. It's after Genesis. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first. I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablet, which you broke. So just a little bit of context here, right? So initially uh, Moses went up on the top of Mount Sinai and God gave him the tablets and wrote on them and everything was all given to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments, the law. Written And why he was up there for 40 days that God was instructing them, I mean, that seems like a long time to get 10 laws. That could be done really quickly. But 40 days he was up there, and why he was up there, the rest of Israel got a little stir-crazy. And like, where's Moses? What's going on? What's taking so long? And so they decided, hey, we should melt all our gold, we should make an idol, a golden calf, and we should worship that as our God. As God is telling them, telling Moses, the Ten Commandments. The first, one of the first couple ones is, right, do not make any idols, which they're doing down at the base. So Moses goes down the mountain after the 40 days, and he sees all this, what's going on. Moses is upset. He's angry. He throws down the tablets, and he breaks it. There's some God's judgment that goes on upon that, and then he goes back up to the top of the mountain, pleads to God. So let's start this again. Moses provides the tablets this time, and this is what God says to him. Okay, I'll do this. I'll do this on the tablets you broke. This, this is a symbolism that not just did Israel just break all the Ten Commandments down there, but Moses did too. Moses is not excluded from them. You broke these commandments literally and figuratively as well, Moses. And it goes on in verse 2 through 4 in Exodus. Be ready by the morning and come up on the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you. Let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds great opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded. And he took his hand tablets of stone. So how is God revealing himself? Really quickly, this is before he verbalizes it, God is revealing himself to Moses, all Israel, that he is holy, that he's radically different than everything else, and that so much so that no one is worthy to approach him. He is inviting Moses, you can come up, but make sure no one else is even on this mountain. In fact, don't even let the herds graze upon the back so they come close to being on the mountain. Nothing can approach me. I am holy. I am radically different. I am righteous, just, and different than all of creation. In verse 5, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed in the name of the Lord. God just said, in a a way, he just revealed himself as holy. And now, as God invites Moses up, God reveals himself as personal, intimate. He is not distant or cold. He invites Moses into relationship. He invites him to see him as anyone can see him on earth, right? The, The tails of his robes at best. He invites to be in a personal relationship with Moses. God is not distant. And then verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Did you hear it? The Lord just described himself. He says, this is who I am. And the first thing he says is, the, he repeats his name, the Lord, the Lord. That, that word Lord there is actually his personal name. When Moses asked him, when he first got introduced to him at the, at the burning bush, Moses asked, who shall I say sent me? He says, I am who I am. Yahweh, this is, the, this is his name, the Lord. I am and he is. It, literally, God's name means "I am," and everything in comparison is not. But the repetition of this name—this is a, a Hebrew way of saying, of, of, of drawing endearment. It's like saying, "Dad, I'm your father." Father, I'm your I'm your Lord. Lord, it's me. Remember, it's a term of endearment. To Moses, this repetition of his name, and then he begins five characteristics that are often repeated in Scripture. The first one is merciful. I am merciful, compassionate. I genuinely care about my people. There is a tenderness to it, and we get this example right away because he gives the commandments. They break it, and what does he do? He gives it to them again. He is merciful. Has compassion for his people. And the second one, he says, I am gracious. What is grace? He goes goes radically beyond mercy and care. He does things, people, in which they do not expect and they do not deserve. He goes beyond. What I often tell people, particularly at funerals, is God is more gracious than you can ever imagine. And when we think of God as gracious, but he is more gracious and generous than you and I could ever hope for and ever imagine. Tim Keller said this, You are worse than you think you are, but also far more loved than you feel you are. And just to put this on the, on the spectrum of this linear thing, like, we are bad, and uh, you, like you may know, eh, I'm not so good, but the reality is, you are worse than you think you are. So you might, you might have actually a terrible self-esteem and think you're just absolutely miserable. Well, guess what? You're worse than that. And you might actually think, hey, I'm pretty good. No, you're probably worse than the person that thinks they're worse, And there's a spectrum and it goes on, you're worse. But in the reality, in conjunction with that, you are more loved than you can ever imagine. It's not like, okay, I'm here, I'm that bad, and so I'm this loved. No, the love is infinite. The love, you are more loved than you can ever possibly understand by God. This is what we need to teach more and more. It doesn't negate this, but it's the reason why God does something about this. Because He loves you more than you could ever realize. God is merciful, He is gracious, and He is slow to anger. May that be so in my life. And God is patient, He is long. Suffering. I don't know how, have you ever clocked or timed how long suffering you are? Like, how long will you endure the annoyance in your life? How long will you endure that particular family member or that particular sin or uh, the, the clerk across the counter? How long will you endure the incompetence? A minute? Two minutes? Ten years? God is long-suffering with his people. As you read the story in the Bible, you're like, whoa, this is a long-suffering God. And he is slow to anger. He is patient with less than satisfactory behavior. And isn't that a nice way of saying what our life is? He is patient with you. God is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. And he's abounding in steadfast love. It is overflowing in him. This is a love that is on this spectrum that is immovable. It's a choice that he makes. And it does not waver. God doesn't flip-flop in his decisions. He chooses... To love because it is his very character that we talk about this often when we talk about the Trinity, the foundational understanding of God in, in Christianity, it, because of the Trinity, is God is love. God eternally loves the Son, the Son eternally loves the Father. And because of this love he gives, God eternally loves his people. He's abounding in steadfast love. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and then faithfulness. God is a promise keeper. I don't know if you watch The Office or not. It's a little harder nowadays that's behind a paid wall, Uh, but uh, there's this episode in The Office called Scott's Tots, And so Michael Scott in this, uh, so when these children were in 10 years ago, when they were in elementary school, he made a promise that he couldn't keep. And he said, I'm going to pay for your college if you graduate. And of course, 10 years later, it comes and they're graduating. And of course, you know, he's middle management. He can't pay for himself to go to college. And he has to pay for all these kids. And so then he has to come because they're going to celebrate him. Here's the interesting thing. I don't know if you watch The officer or not, but it's, it's a pretty cringeworthy kind of humor because it relates to a lot of circumstances in our life. But here's the thing. Statistically, this episode is the most skipped. And they've done a study on it because it relates more closely to who we are as people. It is the most cringeworthy episode, even though it's absolutely hilarious. Because here's the thing, we make promises all the time that we break. Things come of our mouth, and we violate them and break them all the time. And Michael Scott says in this episode, he says, I've made some empty promises in my life, but hands down, that was the most generous. Yeah, and that begins to describe a lot of the promises we make, really generous generous promises that we will break. God is not like that. God makes promises that aren't empty. You see, by the very nature we learn from the very thing uh, about God in Genesis is that God speaks, and what he speaks happens. What God wills, it happens. This is his very power, that he can do whatever he wants and what he wills happens and it always happens. God makes promises in scriptures and he makes promises to you and I and throughout the scripture it shows how those promises are kept. And so we know that the ultimate promises will be kept because he is a promise-keeping God and he is generous, more generous than you and I can imagine. There's lots more that we could talk about God, right? God is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. He is faithful. And there's lots more that we can describe God. We could take a long time, a whole lifetime, uh, understanding who God is. But I chose this passage because these characteristics are repeated by God when people talk about Him over and over in Scripture. In Nehemiah, when they're being reacquainted to who God is, this is how he's described. In the Psalms, in multiple places, but just a couple, Psalm 86 and Psalm 23. this is exactly how he's described in this passage. My favorite is in Jonah 4.2. Jonah says, and he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and, and unrelenting from disaster." I mean, Jonah, who says, who flees from God's call to go to Nineveh, and he tells God, This is why I, f- I didn't want to go to Nineveh, because I knew you were slow to anger. I knew you were merciful. I knew you were gracious. I know you have abounding love because I didn't want that for this people. Is there anyone that you're in your life that you don't want love for? That you want God to smite? To be quick with his anger? Well, I I do. I have a lot to relate to Jonah. I can understand that. And then in Joel, which is quoted in Acts, he talks about the same thing, these same characteristics. The thing that God wants you to know is these things are really important to him because he's holy and it's radically different than you and I. He is merciful. He is gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And he is faithful. If we are not our own, and it's not a responsibility to figure out how or where we belong, and it's not a responsibility to self-improve or find ways to be better and to be more efficient, I'm not saying that being more efficient and finding ways to improve are, not, uh, are bad things, but th- I want you to understand that that is fundamentally not your goal. That is not your goal. It's not your work. Because this is the truth. You belong to God and you are God's work. You and I belong to God and we are God's work. Improvement, growth are byproduct of learning and knowing that you are not your own and you belong to God. God. To grow in these five characteristics, you cannot find a plan that actually will make you grow in that. But you can begin to learn who God is. And the more time you spend learning who God is, God is actually doing an interesting thing in you. He is working these characteristics in you. Because this is fundamental to our salvation, that he is sanctifying us into his character. Last week, I told you that we want to anticipate belonging. And one of ways we can do that is really be still and know God. That's Psalm 46. Be still and know Him. Know that you belong to God. And practically, what does belonging look like in our life? That's what I want to talk about today. What does it practically look like to belong to God? And I think it's stillness. But stillness, as we talk about anticipating and waiting, is not passive. It's not just saying, okay, I'm going to do nothing, and I'm going to wait till God transform my character. It's not how it works, is it? There is an activeness to this. And the first thing is the activeness is, is being still and knowing God. Spending time with him. And in this passage, God doesn't just describe who he is. He actually shows it. He says, this is who I am. And then he goes on in verse 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He said, look, at, I'm having grace right away. But before that, there was punishment for the the idolatry that they just committed. Here's the thing. God takes sin seriously. Every time Jesus encounters sin, he doesn't downplay it. But he always upplays his characteristic. That he is graceful and that he is loving. Jesus takes care of, of sin. He takes care of the punishment of sin on the cross. And he begins to take care of the root of sin, this disease that raids in us by putting us the Holy Spirit in us and beginning to transform it and rooting that sin out. At the very beginning, uh, when God introduces himself to his people, he repeats this over and over again. In Exodus 22, when he gives the Ten Commandments, the first thing that prelude to the Ten Commandments, is, says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And out of the house of slavery, before he even gives the Ten Commandments, he's introducing himself and says, this is what I have done for you already. If God were to come down today and tell you who he is, you know what he would say to you? Would he refer to the Exodus? No, the Exodus points to the cross. To this incredible breakthrough of freedom. I have freed you from the tyranny and the enslavement of sin. I died for you on the cross. I took your penalty, I've forgiven you, and I've given you my righteousness. God shows us radically. Jesus' whole life in the New Testament is a way to show a radical all the way to the cross that he's demonstrating who God is. He's not just speaking it. He's demonstrating who God is and a demonstration of a radical, abundant grace. If I had to summarize all five of those characteristics, I think I would summarize it as grace. Belonging looks like anticipating grace in your life. Belonging to God, knowing that you are not your own, looks like waiting and in stillness, knowing who God is and anticipating grace. The work of God in your life and the work of God through your life. I'm not talking about having no accountability or pe- keeping people accountable because that is a reality of what it means to be in the body of Christ. It's living in a grace-filled community, keeping each other accountable to the stillness. Being graceful is a posture and an attitude first and foremost in our life. It is a character trait. It is who God is fundamentally. And so it is a character trait that is being formed in us. The fundamental purpose of the church on earth. There's a couple ways you can say, right, first of all, it's evangelism. It's, it's telling people who God is, which means we need to know who God is. We need to be still so we can express that. It means we need to act that out, the character of God. But also, the other primary thing is that word sanctification is to the primary way in which God works the Holy Spirit is through relationships in the body of Christ. God is gonna build his character in you through the body of Christ living out together, keeping each other accountable and keeping others accountable. I'm not talking about pointing things out, push and pull, but I'm talking about living life together. Learning who God is together and encouraging each other in that journey. This is why membership in a church, this, this one church universal is important because a membership is about mutual accountability. Mutual accountability in the character of grace in which God is forming us. It is so important. If we belong to God who is graceful, we are to be people that are grace filled our identity is that we belong to God all of us are being transformed and sanctified in this character and one of the major ways in which he reveals himself to us is this character of grace and I want you to understand that is your destination this character that he reveals himself is your destination and you may not feel grace-filled all the time but it is your destination day in and day out, and hopefully, the longer you live, like Jody's been a long time with God, right, a long time on this earth, Jody's actually not the oldest person here, but we won't want to point out the older person, Uh, so the longer you live, maybe you look back like 10 years, it's hard to look day by day how God is filled with grace in your life, or how you're filled with grace in your life, but you're like, man, 10 years ago, I've got a little more patience, a little more slow to anger, a little more love in my life. Not just in one tickler moment, but in totality, it's a little bit more. That's God's work in your life. Our destination is grace. Our world, our world that is caught in this tyranny of self-belonging, they need grace. They need grace. They need to hear it and they need to see it. You may know that Adele dropped her album 30 this week. Did you not? Did you listen to it yet? All right, I did. Yeah. So uh, what, her first single off that album was Easy on Me. And here's how I just took it. There's lots of things. That, it's about her relationships and all that kind of thing. But the, here's how I, I heard this in a sense as a world crying out for grace. In a sense, she's saying, hey, be easy on me. I've had a tough life. I'm young. I'm naive. Have a little grace with me. And as I heard that, it's not like we we can't pinpoint particular things, but I just heard that as as a world crying out, stop judging. Have some grace. Have some grace with people around you. What would grace look like in our lives? And I don't want to trivialize God's grace in your life and in my life but I want some practical ways in which it might look like in our lives. I think one way is to think the best of people. Start with your thoughts. Don't have bad faith judgments on them. Assume the best about who they are and their motives. You know that person that's driving slowly and hindering you on the streets? Assume. They're actually not out to block you. That maybe they have a reason why they're driving slow. Have some grace in your thoughts. How about gentleness in correction via love? I learned this coaching kids. You know when you coach kids and they make a real fundamental mistake... Most often than not, they don't need to be told that they've made a mistake. Usually, they know they've made a tremendous mistake. And so in that moment, they don't need to be lambasted about that mistake. They might need to be brought over and corrected and say, hey, this is what you did wrong, and here's how you actually improve it. But pointing it out and not correcting it, not very helpful. Because most people, in fact, this is actually most people in their sin. Most people know when they sin, not all, not all the time, right? I don't know all the times when I sin, but a lot of times I do. I don't necessarily need to be pointed out, but I do need to have gentleness in correction. Come alongside of me and show me how might I change? How might I approach that situation differently? How about a way to have grace in our life is actually wanting the best for people instead of being envious How about celebrating with them? I think as as sports fans in New England, we had this weird preoccupation with Peyton Manning for a long time. Like, how dare he have any success? (laughs) Like, somehow that would take away your celebration of Tom Brady. No, it's okay. You can celebrate other people and other teams. People getting promotions. Maybe even you think you deserve it over them. You can celebrate them. How about a grace listening to understand people and not to rebuke, not to prove yourself right, even though they might be horrendously wrong in your mind, but just listening to try to understand where they're coming from. I don't know how many times you have a conversation and you're immediately trying to think of how you're going to reply to that person instead of staying in that moment, being present with them and actually just trying to understand who they are. Which gets to my next point about being grace-filled is being present with people. Being in relationship with people. Don't ghost them. I'm just throwing up all my hip words that I've learned in culture. Show up. Show up and celebrate and see how God's grace has worked in them and celebrate that. Here's a way that most of us fundamentally don't live out grace is we don't rest well. We don't take care of ourselves primarily because we don't be still with God. We don't just sit still and be still and learn who God is. How about be quick to reconcile with people instead of holding on to grudges? I'm not necessarily being quick to forgive, but be quick to the process. A lot of times we like to rush forgiveness, but I want to enter into the process of being reconciled, reconciled with people. Like forgiveness can take time and it can be damaged if we rush it. But if you're quick not to hold grudges, like, okay, I'm going to learn to let that go, and it might be hard, but I'm going to be quick to enter into the process of being in a relationship with that people and learning whatever the brokenness is between us. How about over-tipping poor service? Do you ever just tip? You just, I mean, maybe you tip like there's a general rate, but if there's a good service, you're going to tip, and there's a bad service, you might go a little bit under that. And maybe you're normally a 20 percenter and if it's bad service, all right, but I'm at least going to give you 15. What if you just over bad service? I was like, you know what? Maybe that person was just having a bad day. I don't know what's going on in their life. I'm just going to be generous with them. Humility, humility is a byproduct of knowing God's grace for you. And humility With others is a demonstration of God's grace. If you truly understand how God has been gracious with you, you are going to be humble because you know you are worse than you think you are, and you're going to know how much love that you're more loved than you think you are. And so you're going to live more in a stance of humility. And here's the thing about humility. Humble people, you know it. People that are humble, not false humility, but people that are truly humble in our lives, those are the people we want to be around. Those are the people that we want to just skinny up close to and like, hey, they're they're my friend. I belong with them. I'm associated with them because it's a demonstration of God's grace. Remember, people don't deserve your grace. That's the definition of grace. People don't deserve it. You don't deserve God's grace but this is a character in which he is is giving things that which you don't deserve and don't belong to you. God gives, and that's what we do with other people because that is the character of God being intertwined into us. You and I are going to need grace in giving grace because you and I are going to fail at giving grace to people. This list that I just gave, you're going to go out and you're going to fail miserably. It's, it's more of an exhaustive list than grace, but you're going to fail at giving grace. You may have heard of Yoda, right? Yoda is famous for a line, do or do not, there is no try. We've heard this line, right? Well, here's the thing about Yoda. He is miserably wrong in this statement. And if you actually watch the whole series, he's actually miserably wrong about most things. I know you may think he's cute and adorable, but he actually gets almost everything wrong in his life. Go watch Star Wars and tell me about this. I'm telling you, it's everything he's wrong he gets. He's a terrible character. Yeah. In, in some ways, I mean, he's actually a monster and actually a huge villain in this series. I'm telling you, go watch it. It is. He gets almost everything wrong. Don't follow Yoda. But here's the thing. It's not about do or not. The only thing that is, is trying. And I'm not trying about half hearted trying. I'm talking about really trying because you and I are going to fail at this. We're going to fail at grace because this is who we are. There's sin ingrained in, in us and we're fighting this. But God still stands to stand up and try again because he's long-suffering with us. He is patient with us and he loves us. Try grace again. Try to live it out again. You are not responsible for your self-identification. You are not responsible for your self-improvement. You are not responsible for your self-belonging in this world. You belong to God. Philippians 2, 12 through 16 says it this way. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That says, oh, that's something I do. No, it is for God who works in you. This is saying, don't be passive. Get up and do something and see what God is doing in you. Try both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Here, there's an example of grace. That you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Be still, be still, And know who God is. God is grace. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain in the labor in vain. Our labor, trying, is not in vain. Because it's the God of grace that works in us and for us. It is the God of grace that works in us and for us. Alan Noble in his book that I recommended last week says this, you may never see the fruits of labor in your life, but it doesn't matter. God did not call you to be successful. He called you to be faithful. Simple as that. He called you to trust Him. He called us to be grace-filled as well. And this is His work. God is grace-filled for us, and we will be successful because He is successful, and we are His work. We act and we try to live out grace by resting in the sovereignty of God, that God is a promise keeper, and He's promised this in our lives. After God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain for the second time, it says in verse 8, and Moses quickly quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. When we learn who God is, when we understand the spectrum is that he loves us more and more grace-filled and slow, when God introduces himself, he's compassionate, he's gracious, he's patient, abounding in love, he's faithful, promise keeper, the only response is worship. So, worship this holy, different God. The God that is radically different in the character that is demonstrated in us day in and day out. Worship isn't just bowing down, it isn't just coming to church. It's about giving your whole life o- over and understanding that you are not your own and that you belong to Him, and He purchased you with a price. I'm not sure what stops you from living out grace. I am sure. It's your sin. It's your very character. I don't know what your sin is. I know some of mine. But here's the thing. Whatever is in your life that stops you from being gracious, root it out. Root it out. Get rid of it. The gracious God is constructing in you and I his very character of graciousness. The world is dying. Better yet, The world is dead. The world needs grace demonstrated by you and I, living out the character of God. The world needs a church that is grace filled. They need us to be easy on them. We need each other to be grace filled as well. Don't be Jonah. Don't be Jonah. You see, when we live out grace, the world will begin to understand fundamentally who God is, and we want them to know who God is. We want to anticipate grace, anticipate grace in our life, anticipate demonstrating grace in your life so that those that don't belong to him may one day understand that they actually belong to him, and that a character of grace is a character that's going to be formed in them. We will anticipate being eager, awaiting, being still and knowing. We will anticipate grace, a God that has worked for us, in us, and through us. Amen. Gracious God, I give you thanks that you are gracious to us. I give you thanks for all the ways that you have shown grace this morning. That you have shown grace through this week. And Lord, I come to confess in many ways in which I failed to show grace to others. Show grace to myself. Show grace to my neighbors. In my mind and in my actions. Lord, help us to identify those things where we lack that kind of compassion. Let us not be stingy and withholding Let us be giving because we love. Lord, we are your people and we belong to you. We thank you for your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.